Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 18, he is also head of the body, the church, and he, that is Christ, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Amen. Sometimes when you want to mess with a um, licentiate, uh, you might throw him a trick question here or there, and uh, just for fun. And uh, sometimes one of the uh, questions that sometimes may uh, be hurled at the unsuspecting uh, licentiate, usually more in committee than on the floor, but uh, they'll say, who was that of the church in 1088? And your, your immediate instinct is to try and think church history. Um, the, that's wrong. You're not supposed to be thinking church history. You're supposed to be thinking theologically. That is, um, the, your instinct might be to think, okay, well, who was Pope? back then. The answer, boys and girls, is that Jesus was the head of the church in 1088 or 1172 or in 2022. Jesus, Jesus alone has been the head of the church for the last two millennia. So it is not a pope who is the head of the church, but it is the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now one of the things that the book of Colossians emphasizes is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We see um, in this verse, it explicitly says he's the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning. That's language that in the Old Testament in Isaiah, for example, is applied <clears throat> excuse me, to um, God Almighty. You know, he's the beginning and the end, the uh, beginning and the uh, uh, first and last. And yet that language here is being applied as it is in Revelation to Jesus. And I think it's a signature that Christ is fully God as is the Father. And yet, um, the Bible says that uh, Christ being, in essence, God of God and also creator is something that the book of Colossians brings forth as well. Um, he is the head of the church here on earth, the body of Christ. Not just the church on earth, but as we're going to see, the whole church, invisible as well as visible, the invisible church, the church that uh, we don't see part of which is in heaven. And, uh, and so I want to talk tonight about what it means, what's the significance of Jesus being the head of the church. <clears throat> well, we're going to get some help from a few authors, one of whom is James Bannerman, and uh, he's written a book, a thick book, on, on the church. And there are three things that we see, first of all, that um, come to us by implication. If Jesus is the head of the church, which the scriptures say in verse 18 he is, Three things for us here to consider uh, under this heading of Christ, the head of the church. Number one is this. If Christ is head of the church, then the members of the church are not the head. The members of the church are not the head. Number two, if Jesus Christ is the head of the church, then we also know that the civil magistrate, that is the government, boys and girls, civil government, the civil government, the politicians, are not the head of the church. And then thirdly, we're also going to see that if Christ is the head of the church, then the Pope, or also the Pope with bishops, or you could even say the pastors, are not the head of the church. No ecclesiastical authority in the church is the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. Um, you know, one time, little kid, you know, he... He said, well, who, who is that, speaking of me? And he said, he's the captain of the church. 
And well, no, I, the captain of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is at the head of his people. Now, James Bannerman notes that the power of the church is not derived by commission or warrant of her members. Listen to what Bannerman says here on this point. He says, the power of the church is derived from a higher source than the consent of the delegation of its members. That is, we don't exist simply because we as members have consented to our own existence. He says, rather, the church is a positive institution and divine warrant. It is not from the same origin as a voluntary or private society. So a church is unique. It's not the same thing as the Lions Club or the Rotary Club or any other organization that's out there. How do those organizations come about? Well, they come about because the members deem them to come about. The church comes about by a supernatural work of the Spirit through the Word. And, and the Spirit, through the, the preaching of the Word, gathers the church together. Now, um, so it, it, is, it is wholly unique in, in that sense from any other institution. Um, the church is, an, Bannerman says, the church is an institution of God, not just by his ordinary providence, that would be true of all groups, right? But by his special redemptive grace and his power. He says the church does not exist by consent of her members, but the members are not the source, excuse me, the church does exist by the consent of her members, as we agree to be members, right? But the members are not the source of the church's authority and power. The source of the church's authority is from God and God alone, in which we, her members, are consenting. Now, um, so he, he's making the case that the church is an institution, but it is a unique institution, unlike other institutions. Now, there are some denominations that want to go so far as to deny that the church is really an institution or organization at all. Um, it's, you know, they'll say it's an organism. It's only an organism. Um, and Bannerman says <clears throat> that the scripture gives evidence that it is an institution. We should think of the church also as an institution. He gives uh, several reasons here, six. Number one, he says Christ, first of all, commands the existence of the church. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. So he is building an institution, all right? He's building a particular body politic, if you will, here, of which he is king. Number two, Christ gives office bearers to that institution. First, we see apostles, then after the apostles, we see, for example, in Acts chapter 6, the office of deacons. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we see that the Bible commands for uh, us to select men to be elders and deacons. So again, there's a government, there's a structure. Number three, Christ gives us laws for his church. It's the Bible, the word of God regulates the church. Both her office bearers and her members at large are all under the word of God, the word of God being our constitution. Number four, there are names given to office bearers, he says, elder, deacon, teacher, evangelist, etc. Number five, the duties 
of members and the duties of office bearers are outlined in the New Testament. For example, the Bible says, submit yourself in the Lord to your elders. Elders, do not lord it over them. So that we see there's exhortations for members with regard to officers. There's exhortations to officers with regard to the members they serve. And then sixthly, Bannerman says this, that there are examples of the exercise of power being used in the church. So for example, where Apostle Paul says he handed one over to Satan in order to teach him not to blaspheme. We find um, that the man who is in an adulterous relationship in the congregation at Corinth is to be excommunicated until he repents. And then by the time you get to the second letter, um, it seems as though that man did repent. And now he's, he's admonishing the congregation to forgive him, restore him, uh, reaffirm your love for him, lest he be completely discouraged uh, altogether. So we see exercises uh, of power in the, in the church. Also, um, the power of the church is not derived from any commission or warrant from the state. Now, this, um, the theological term for this is Erastianism, E-R-A-S-T-I-A-N-I-S-M, Erastianism. Erastian, you got to do it like the spelling bee, right? Can I hear that in a sentence? Um, Erastianism is where the state considers itself the head of the church. For, so, for example, the queen of England... Uh, is the head of the Anglican Church, right? Um, the Bible says that the state may provide civil recognition of the church, may even enter for an, an alliance with the church for the common good with regard to something. But the state is not the head of the church. Um, the state of Georgia may recognize us as a church, but Bannerman notes that the recognition is not authorial in nature. That is, we don't exist because the state of Georgia says we exist. We are incorporated, but that's, that is not an authorial incorporation. That's the state of Georgia recognizing what already is a reality. We are not the creation of the state. The state's recognition is, is secondary. So now you might say, well, is this a big issue? Well, it used to be to your Presbyterian fathers and mothers. Um, back in the 17th century, this was a, a huge issue. It was a struggle for many of our Presbyterian fathers because um, the monarchy in England, in London, was seeking to try and impose bishops on the Presbyterian church in Scotland. Now, why did he want to do that? Why did the Stuart monarchy want to do that? Well, because... If you can put your bishops in, your political appointees in, then you have greater political control over the church. You can see that's be attractive to a politician, wouldn't it? That you know you could see somebody in the government says, "Hey, you know, you Orthodox Presbyterians, guess what? Um, you no longer are governing yourselves anymore. Um, the government is going to have a bishop uh, appointed for you, and you're going to listen to what he tells you to do." Now, you can imagine how this would go over at our next congregational meeting if a bishop shows up here and says, hi, I'm from the federal government, 
and I'm here to serve you as your new bishop. And uh, if you've got any problems with that, see me, you know, later. Well, you know, that did not go over, as you can imagine, um, with the Presbyterians. And um, there was a season actually called the Killing Times where our Presbyterian fathers were badly persecuted. Um, th th there was um, um, a time where many times they met in what were called conventicles. A conventicle, young people, is where you have church uh, outside, but you're hiding, kind of. Kind of like we did with COVID, but we, weren't adver we were advertising that we were having church out here in the field. But, but the conventicles were kind of secret um, church meetings where they'd gather in various locales in order to have public worship without a bishop telling them what to do. And of course, the government looked dimly on this and began to send uh, English dragoons to go and break these assemblies up because they were considered rebellion against the king because the king is the head of the church in his view. So, so I know, you know, you may not, we may not be wrestling with this issue now, but historically we have, and it may come again. There's nothing new under the sun. And so um, we, do, we do need to stand our ground on this. And, uh, and, and our, our, our Presbyterian father said, no, Christ alone is the head of the church. And the church has the right to appoint and call her own ministers, not a bishop. And so this was not some, you know, abstract ecclesiastical point here. This was a matter of saying, who runs the church ultimately? This is Jesus Christ and his word here. So Caesar is not the head of the church. We can't take the crown of Jesus and put it on the head of President Biden or the Supreme Court or Governor Kemp or even our local mayor. The crown of Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus alone. So the Covenanters and the Presbyterians in Scotland rightly resisted this imposition upon the church when the Stuart monarchy was insisting on their way. Now, I think today the state will try to impose itself on the church, not in matters of theology proper, not in whether we take communion kneeling or vestments as it was in their day, but... I think it's still possible that the church may um, face a situation where the state is trying to encroach on us. We, we've seen this already, um, not so much in the church particular, but some of our um, parachurch ministries like um, Reformed University Fellowship of the PCA faced a situation where universities were refusing campus ministries that would not allow homosexuals to serve in the leadership of that campus ministry. And so they, what are they doing? Well, that's a state institution trying to impose the rules for our campus ministries there. Okay, And, and so it may, may be in a matter of sexual ethics that we find ourselves pressed, uh, rather than maybe the issue of a bishop or whether the congregation has a right to call our own ministers. It may be also that the federal government, who needs to cover their own prodigal spending, will seek new sources of revenue. And they may look to the church, and they'll say, well, the, the, you, are the, you are the creation of the state, and therefore you, you are not tax-exempt, to which we would argue, 
We agree, we're not tax exempt. We are non-taxable. The church is a non-taxable institution. It is, it is not merely tax exempt. Uh, the, the church does not derive any um, of its being from the state. Now listen to Bannerman on this. He says this, the church as a society owes its origin to Jesus Christ. It derives from him its government, its office bearers. It receives from him its laws, its constitution. It draws from him its spiritual influence and grace. Our life as a church depends on Christ. You know, all Jesus has to do is withdraw his spirit. And we may have a name, but there's no presence or reality if Christ removes himself from his church here. Um, our, our spiritual existence depends on Christ. The church accepts at, at Jesus' hand the ordinances and the institutions that he gives us. The church acts in Jesus' name. It's guided in its proceedings by Jesus' authority. Um, you know, you see this uh, in the book of Revelation, don't you? Who, you know, John brings a message to the seven churches, but it's really Christ bringing the message to them and saying, look, you're doing this well, but not this, and repent, or otherwise there are going to be consequences because I'm the head of the church. The lampstand, you know, I'm the one who dwells in the midst of the lampstands. I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my hand. And we know that the seven stars are the angels or the messengers, I think it could be translated, which may be the preachers, by the way. So Christ is the source of spiritual life for us. Jesus Christ is the primary teacher in this church, in all his church. Uh, he teaches us by his word and by his spirit. Christ is the head of his ordinances, as we saw this morning, baptism and Lord's Supper. These were instituted by Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who broke the bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. It was Jesus before his ascension who said, go unto the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ is the head of the church as grace is administered. Christ is the head of the church in its authority when done according to his word. Jesus said that that which was bound on earth is bound in heaven. That which, you know, those that we admit in the Lord, in the church, are admitted into glory. Also, Jesus Christ is the head of the invisible as well as the visible church. He's the administrator uh, of both. Um, the invisible church includes all of God's elect. The visible church, as it sounds like boys and girls, is the church you and I can see, right? Jesus is the head uh, of both the local church here in LaGrange, but also the universal church. Jesus, as we see in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's the head of every congregation uh, as well. Now, the church as an, is an institution, but it's also the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says that not only is it an institution with a government, with officers, with laws, but it's also a body. And just as we took communion this morning, as we celebrate the uh, redeeming death of Jesus Christ for us. What are we also acknowledging? Not only our union with Jesus Christ as we eat the bread and the bread becomes a part of our body and we drink of the wine and it becomes a part of our body and thus signifying our union with Christ, but also that we have this common union in Jesus Christ with each other. 
that we are members of one another. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21. Um, our union is defined with each other by our common union to Jesus Christ. So that here again, this is something that makes the church unique from any other institution. It's not based on age or ethnicity or socioeconomic factors or common interests, but rather it is based on our union with Jesus Christ. Thus, we are in union with each other. And so Christ, being the head of his body, he gives graciously gifts to all the members of the church. You have gifts that you are to exercise for the edification of others. They have gifts which they exercise for the edification of others and yourself. We also not only edify one another with our gifts and graces, but we bear one another's burdens. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. If one member suffers, we join with them in that suffering. We bear one another's burdens. There's an interesting, sometime if you get time and you're looking for something to do in the New Testament, look at all the one anothering passages that are in the New Testament. All the exhortations to one another, and it's kind of an interesting study. I think Tom Champness, many years ago at Redeemer uh, Church in Atlanta, did a series on all of those one anothering passages. Um, if one member rejoices, we enter into that joy with them. So it's not just suffering, but joy as well. So the doctrine of the headship of Christ um, is an important doctrine. Now what I want to do is I want to spend a little bit of time that we have left here to talk about um, the, the Protestant Reformation and Presbyterians and why this is important, especially with regard to Roman Catholicism. Because um, you who have Roman Catholic friends, they will have a different view of the headship of, of the church here. And so I think it would do us well to understand without misrepresenting, sometimes Protestants are not fair to Roman Catholics in that they misrepresent their views, and so I want to try and accurately give you uh, their views, but also give you a critique uh, of, of this here. So I want to talk a little bit about um, Rome, and particularly the, the fact that many of you know that the Rome teaches that the Pope is the universal bishop uh, within the Christian church. Um, and so with the help of James Bannerman again, he says that here that the doctrine of the headship of Christ is denied or detracted from the popish system, which ascribes the, to the Bishop of Rome authority within the church inconsistent with that of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ as the head here. So, the, so Rome teaches that the Pope is the universal bishop within the Christian church here on earth. Now this, since the early Middle Ages, this has been going back many centuries here, the Roman church has taught that Peter was the first pope. Now, I want you to understand, young children, some of what I'm about to tell you, I'm, I'm explaining the Roman Catholic view here. I'm not, so I don't want you to get confused. I'm not here saying that this is what the Bible says. I'm saying this is what the Roman Catholic Church says that the Bible is, is saying here. So since the early Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church taught that, that the Apostle Peter was the first pope of Rome and that he was the supreme leader, and that his supremacy has been transmitted successively through the centuries through the Bishop of Rome. 
This comes from Robert L. Raymond in his book. And now, where do they get that? Well, look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 they look at a, a passage that's probably familiar to many of you, but would it interpret it differently than Protestants. In chapter 16, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 18, we read this. I'll just read 17 for context. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, that is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you, now here's the key part for our lesson, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now the dispute here between Rome and the Protestant tradition is what? <coughs> what does Jesus mean when he says, upon this rock? All we have is the text. Was Jesus pointing to Peter when he said that? Upon this rock I will build my church? Was he meaning, you know, Peter, you will be the Pope and everyone who succeeds you? Or, as Protestants often view here, was it the confession of Peter? When Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that this, this refers to the statement that Peter made. Everybody understand the controversy there? Okay, was Jesus referring to Peter the person? Was he referring to the confession of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, Rome answers that. If you go to Rome and you go to St. Peter's Basilica, you will see in Latin, tu es Petrus et super hunc Petram edificabo ecclesiam mean, meaning, you know, upon this rock, Peter, I'll build my church. They, they understand it as the person of Peter. Now listen to their catechism. They have a catechism too. It's called the Baltimore Catechism. And in lesson 11 on the church, <coughs> question 495, who is the invisible head of the church? Now this is where we want to be fair. They say Jesus Christ is the invisible head of the church. So we one, don't want to misrepresent them. They do. There is a sense that Rome says Jesus is the head of the church. Okay, Jesus Christ is the invisible head of the church. But they go on. Here's where it gets more difficult. Question 496. Who is the visible head of the church? The answer, our Holy Father, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is the vicar of Christ on earth and the visible head of the church. And then it goes on. What does vicar mean? Vicar is the name used in the church to designate a person who acts in the name and authority of another. Um, and, you know, it goes on. Could anyone be the Pope? Could anyone be Pope without being the Bishop of Rome? Only one could not be Pope without being the Bishop of Rome. And there, there are others. Why do Catholics, why are they called Roman, etc.? And I won't, won't read um, all of these, but they get into the questions of, you know, the successors of Peter, um, and question 505, did Peter establish any church before he came to Rome? Yes, in Antioch, they say. Who are the successors of the apostles, etc.? And, and they go on. Um, they say, we know that the rights and privileges bestowed on St. Peter were given also to his successors. 
the popes because the promises made to St. Peter by our Lord were fulfilled in the church till the end of time, and Peter was not to live till the end of time. They are fulfilled in his successors. Now, so how do we answer this? Well, first of all, let's say some positive things about Peter, all right? And then critique here. Now, um, Robert Raymond, in, in answering this, says a number of things that are helpful. Number one, he says there are 140 references to Peter in the four Gospels. So that Peter is mentioned a lot. We have to acknowledge that. Uh, Peter is, is a significant pillar uh, in the church. He says also that there are more than 30 references, or excuse me, there, there are more, 30 more references to Peter than to all the other disciples combined. So Peter gets a lot of attention. Mind you, it's not always positive attention, though, right? Um, he is often the head of each list of the apostles. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, uh, Luke's gospel, and also in the book of Acts, Peter's name is always the first name. Peter's one of the inner circle with James and John, right? Who gets to go to the Mount uh, of Transfiguration? Peter, James, John. Who gets to go to see J.R.S.'s daughter raised? Peter, James, and John, right? So Peter's, Peter's in that inner circle a lot. Peter was the one who walked on the sea with Jesus. <coughs> Peter was the one in Luke twenty-two thirty-two who was charged with the task of strengthening his brothers. Peter was the one who was moderating the meeting in Acts chapter 1 when they found a replacement for Judas in Matthias. Peter is the one who preaches the first sermon after the giving of the Holy Spirit. Peter is the one who is sent to the missionary, uh, as the missionary to the, to the Gentiles first, with, with Cornelius. Peter's speech is the first one that's recorded in the circumcision debate in Acts 15 that we talked about this morning. Peter is named first among those to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection in Paul's list. Peter, along with James and John, are called pillars in Galatians 2.9. So you have all that. Uh, Peter's an important person. and We don't, we don't want to overreact to Rome by diminishing the importance, the influence of Peter. However, Matthew 16, 18. The rock here likely refers to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Not Peter himself, the man, as the foundation of the church. Jesus, we are told in Ephesians 2, verse 20, is the cornerstone. The rock is Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. And if you know, the, the cornerstone had a great significance because that was the stone that needed to be perfectly square because all the other stones were going to be built on the basis of the cornerstone. I, I had to do this just this week. I, you know, I, I took down, Peter's moved on, so Clemson Paul comes down off the truck, right? He's in the Navy, we're going to support him, the good uncle, going to put the Navy sticker on. Well, what's the trouble with these stickers? You've got to get them level, right? <laughs> and the trouble is my window is not you know, it's not square. It's kind of got a little arch, and it makes it difficult I'm trying to get it square. The cornerstone is important. You, you know, like that sticker. If you don't get it right, and then you back away, and you realize, ah, oh, man, that's not straight. You know, and it looks fine up close, but when you back away, it isn't. The cornerstone is, is so significant because if that is not uh, level, then the whole building is going to be wonky. 
And, and so Christ is the cornerstone of the church, not Peter, the apostle. Peter's confession is, is the foundation of the church. Also, I think there is evidence in the Bible that shows that Peter um, is not the first pope or even above the other apostles. For example, in Acts 15, going back to the Jerusalem council, Peter seems to speak as one among equals. It's not as though Peter says, this is what we need to do, and that was the end. But we, are, we, we read about many speeches following Peter's. So it wasn't as though Peter seemed to have the final word. There seemed to be what we in Presbyterian circles call parity among the officers, the elders. You remember Peter, even in his epistle, says he is a, what, a fellow elder when he writes to the elders in chapter 5. We see that um, in Galatians 2.11, when Peter came to Antioch, he was opposed to his face by the apostle Paul because Peter was wrong and that he was compromising the gospel and the unity of the church and needed to be corrected. He began to withdraw fellowship from Gentile believers when um, certain Jews came in among them. There's also no New Testament verse to support the idea that Peter could in any way transmit his authority to a successor of his own. There's nothing in the New Testament that any successor to Peter had to be the chief pastor in Rome. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, never mentions Peter's name among the people to greet in Romans 16. You, you know, you got that whole list of names. You know, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. You know. And Peter's name is never mentioned. 2 Timothy chapter 4 makes no mention of Peter in Paul's last letter when Paul is imprisoned. There's no mention of Peter at all. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, Paul was, we were told, to minister to the Gentiles, and Peter was to minister to whom? To the Jews. Yeah. You know, uh, Raymond, in his book, asked the question, why is Peter challenged by others <clears throat> for baptizing the house of Cornelius if he was supreme among, among the apostles? Why is Peter listed only as one of the pillars in Jerusalem? And that, his name comes after James. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the purchase of indulgences can bring forgiveness of sins. And yet Peter says no, himself. He says that we cannot be redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold. You see that in, in his epistle. Um, and, and there are other arguments that, that we could go on, but probably don't have any time because we're running out here. Um, let me bring it maybe here to a, a conclusion. First of all, we need to reaffirm what we read in Colossians here, that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. We, we should always look to Jesus as being the head of this congregation, Jesus being the head of our presbytery, Jesus being the head of the OPC, Jesus being the head of all 
churches that love the gospel and love sincerely the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever he may be rightly preached and understood that Christ and Christ alone is the head of the church. No mere man can be the head of the body of Christ, even on earth, even if it's only the head on earth. Christ is the head of the church in heaven. Christ is the head of the church on earth. And the only difference between the book of Acts and Luke's gospel, remember Luke writes two volumes, it's all about the ministry of Christ. One is Christ's ministry on earth. Acts is Christ's ministry in heaven. But both the gospel as well as Acts is about Jesus being the head of his church. Elders, how do we understand the role of elders and deacons? These are offices, but they are instituted by Christ. We serve Christ through the office of elders, whether it's a minister, a teaching elder, or a ruling elder, along with the deacons. These are offices instituted by Jesus Christ through his word. They are offices of service and teaching. But Christ is still the head of the church. No elder, no pastor is the head of the congregation. They serve Christ, who is the church's head. We see that there, are to be, there is to be parity among the elders. As I said earlier, Peter says he's a fellow elder with the elders. Now, there may be elders who have greater influence. That is unavoidable. God gives certain ministers in presbytery greater gifts. And we should listen to them, okay? I'm not Lincoln Duncan. <laughs> okay, I'm not Sinclair Ferguson. There are ministers who have greater gifts, but they have no greater authority. They have greater influence. And we should listen, but, um, but there's no primacy. Uh, they, they, when they come to Presbytery, they come as fellow elders, and they have one vote, one voice, like any other minister or, or elder in the church. The apostles, we're told, are the foundation of the church under Christ. Remember Christ being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. Um, and yet their gifts and their office, redemptive historically, were temporary. That is, with, with the death of John, you had the last of the apostles. There was no succession even though some may claim a succession to the apostles, and that's not unique to, to Rome. There are some Protestant churches that claim apostolic succession. Um, I've even met one here in town who told me he was an apostle. <laughs> uh, but we know that the, the, the gifts of the apostles are not with them. I mean, I would like to follow him to the hospital and see him raise the dead if he truly is an apostle. Um, but, but we know that the gifts ended because the office of the apostle ended. So Christ is now governing his church through what? Through the writings of the prophets and of the apostles. Christ promised that the apostles would have the Holy Spirit, that Christ would lead the apostles into all truth, and that they would write under the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ, and therefore their word is... Um, authoritative, which means that as we follow the word, 
we are an apostolic church, okay? You're an apostolic church, not based on having an apostle in residence. You're an apostolic church if you submit to the authority of the scriptures. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, our lesson tonight. We thank you that Jesus is our king. And he 